Hello and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly. With you in studio, Amir Tibon. Later on today's episode, we'll hear from Martin Indyk, former U.S. ambassador to Israel, why the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not a priority for the Biden administration, and what Henry Kissinger, the subject of Indyk's new book, would have done in response to provocative Israeli settlement announcements. But before that... When you walk through the garden, you gotta watch your back. What's going on in Turkey? An arrest of a Mossad spy ring, diplomats being kicked out of the country. We'll discuss these developments with our first guest. Hello to Louis Fishman, an associate professor at Brooklyn College who divides his time between Istanbul and Tel Aviv and writes frequently for Haaretz about Turkish politics and foreign relations. Hey there, how are you doing? Great to have you on the show, Louis. We're going to talk today about two big headlines coming out of Turkey in recent days. One has to do with us here in Israel, another with uh, Turkey's relations with basically everyone else. Let's start with President Erdogan's surprising announcement this weekend that he's kicking out the ambassadors of 10 states from Turkey, including small negligible countries like the United States, France and Germany. What is this drama all about? Well, you know, I have to say that, you know, I cover Turkish politics very closely for 20 years now. But I was really shocked. It's amazing that Erdogan can still surprise someone like you. Yeah, I mean, I, I was quite shocked. And I kept on reading the tweets and saying, is this for real? Maybe we got the translation wrong. And it wasn't at all. So what's this about? For About four years ago, there's a very wealthy philanthropist who many people in the, the left circles know. His name is Osman Kavala. A really nice gentleman. He donates a lot of money to groups wanting to, I think, enhance understanding, whether it's recognition of the Armenian genocide, working with Armenia. He also has a restaurant where he hosts a lot of the you know, LGBT groups meet there during Pride Week. And he, he's just a very, very good person. He was arrested for instigating the Gezi Park protests, along with a numerous other... Th- those that took place in 2013? That's right. They were still, exactly. are still prosecuting people for that event from eight years ago? Exactly. And in fact, the courts even considered that, that was, there was no longer a case, released everyone. And as he was being released, they rearrested him again. So he has been basically in jail for four years. And like I said, I have to, to say that he really is a genuine good person. And many, many people in the world are interested that he will be released. Now, what's interesting in, is that incl- Including this- the governments of those countries that are now going to have exactly. their ambassadors kicked out of Ankara. Yes, and not only that, in fact, the European Court of Human Rights ruled that his detainment was illegal. So there's a ruling that, you know, Turkey adheres to the ECHR, um, and he hasn't been released. So finally, these ambassadors conjured up enough courage, which usually they don't, some of, you know, some of the states, and they said, we actually want him to be freed and the United States put it on their Twitter account which I thought was quite bold and you know putting the US aside we can talk about about that in a few minutes I have to say that the the European countries really had a good reason to to bring this up and once they did bring it up they were summoned to the foreign ministry they were scolded and we thought that it ended there but yesterday at a rally, Erdogan came out and said, no, it's not over. So I want to hear Erdogan's part of his speech where he talks about this decision to kick out the ambassadors. Let's listen. Verdim. Ne söyledim. 
Bu 10 tane Dışişleri Bakanı'nın Dışişleri. Louis, let me ask you, is this outburst, because that's what it looks like to me, really about the specific case of this specific dissident? Or is there something larger in the background? Maybe Erdogan is angry at some of these countries for other reasons? No, it is about the dissident. Um, absolutely. Um, for Erdogan, he has a personal vendetta against Osman Kavala. I'd like to say perhaps also Osman Kavala and other people from the left were among the groups of liberals that, I don't know if he ever came out and supported the government, but he definitely, they were working hand in hand for years. I mean, the government between 2002 all the way up to 2013 was actually promoting the very things that Osman Kavala is doing, whether that's um, re- good relations with Armenia, whether that's opening up the discussion about the Armenian genocide. So I think he feels betrayed by him and a, a number of uh, liberals within the, the Turkish political world. So I think it's very, very personal for Erdogan. Um, and he genuinely believes that George Soros is behind us. Oh, I really of course. Think he, <laughs> yes, yes. I think this is something, you know, he calls him, you know, Soros' stooge, or as one person said, Osman Kavala, I think, had referred to uh, Erdogan calling them, you know, Soros' scum. So, you know, it, but the thing is, I think Erdogan really believes this, and he won't leave it alone. Obviously, this shows that this is even more proof that, that his case is purely political. Right. So where Erdogan says, don't interfere in our courts, every time he gives a statement against Kavala, that's interfering the courts as well. Mm-hmm. So I think it's clear that he's he's held on um, political reasons and hopefully he'll be released soon. But it doesn't look like it's going to happen in, mm-hmm. anytime in the near future. And moving on to our story, I'm putting it in, in brackets. Uh, Turkey announced last week that it arrested a ring of Mossad agents operating on Turkish soil. Let's listen to a short news clip. about this supposed uh, event. Our MIT has exposed a ring of Mossad informants living in Turkey, this after tracking them for over a year. Now, the network consisted of three-person cell groups which collected information on foreign students enrolled in Turkish universities. All 15 were arrested in a secret operation carried out on October 7th. But we are now starting to learn a little bit more about what kind of intel they were collecting and from whom. Louis, does this signal a new crisis in the Jerusalem-Ankara relationship that has known its own, you know, quite fair share of crisis uh, in recent years, even before this happened? I actually don't think it will. I, you know, when I heard first the story was broke, I was actually, you know, I thought something, this might be of a larger scope, and this actually might include Turkish citizens. This is actually, you know, we saw last week, for example, Turkish intelligence meet, had arrested also in the last couple of weeks, Russians, Iranians for similar things. What I think this is, is Turkey saying, you know, in our borders, if you're here, you cannot spy on other people and you cannot have a free playing field here. Because what we saw here was these were actually Palestinians uh, accused of spying on other Palestinians. And I think that's where they're drawing the line. I actually think that the case could be true. You know, there's thousands of Palestinians in Turkey hundreds and hundreds of students, if not thousands. I mean, let's, let's remember that, you know, people coming from Gaza, that's one of the few places they actually can study. So I think for Turkey, it's very, very important that the students can come and study. I know that um, they might have been connected to Hamas. You know, we hear a lot of these rumors, but I think they're just drawing the line within our borders, don't interfere. So I think there's, like I said, once again, there is some truth to this. Um, we're going to have to wait and see. 
I don't see how this is going to really affect Turkish-Israeli relations in the long run. We have to remember that in 2018, um, Israel had arrested a Turkish woman for abetting Hamas, um, providing with a small amount of money to a Hamas member in Jerusalem. She was held quietly. She was, um, after about a month being held or a couple months, she was uh, let go and returned to Turkey. I think both sides right now are not interested in a crisis. And um, we can see what's going to happen the next few weeks when this indictment comes out. But also, I want to say, I think for the, the on the Mossad part, this was a very, very small operation. This wasn't something huge. I mean, they found people that were able to, you know, help them inside Turkey. So they probably said, okay, we'll take it. I don't think this is something of a huge proportion. And once again, it does not include Turkish citizens. Yep. And that is very, very important. In the past, Mossad and Turkish intelligence were considered close partners in the region. Why is that no longer the case? I mean, since Erdogan came to power, there was a decline in um, military um, intelligence sharing from 2003-2005. And I think really the big break in, um, was Mavi Marmara way back in 2009. I think that really made the huge break. Today, I don't think they're at odds or loggerheads with each other, but they really are two separate uh, institutions. And it, it's hard for me to imagine that they're, they're sharing intelligence. Although, um, having said that, there is, I'm sure, an open channel between the two. Um, and that's something I, I'm not privy to know. But I do think that, remember that Turkey and Israel, you know, they love screaming and yelling at each other. But they've had pretty solid relations despite all the fallouts that they've had, both the Turkish institution, and that includes Erdogan himself, uh, wants to keep the relations open, the channels open. We know that in the last you know, 20 years, Turkish Airlines has traded with Israel and Turkish Airlines has just continued with their flights to Israel. And in 2019, before the COVID breakout, over a million Israelis and uh, tourists had reached Israel and left Israel by Turkish Airlines. So that's a very, very important part. Second thing is that with the new relations with Israel and the UAE, um, Turkey might even understand this as a channel to strengthen their relations with the UAE, Bahrain, and, and some of the Gulf countries. So I do think this, once again, to get back to the Mossad part, I really, really think this is something that they had to do some cleaning up, they're going to do it, but they don't want this to, to affect the relations at large. Well, we'll have to keep following, and we're also expecting an interesting article from you, Louis, on Haaretz.com about this affair. Thank you so much for joining us today, and looking forward to reading more from you about uh, Turkey and Israel and what's between the two of them. Thanks so much for having me. Up next, Martin Indyk on Kissinger and Middle East Diplomacy. Hello to Martin Indyk, former U.S. ambassador to Israel and the author of the newly released Master of the Game, Henry Kissinger and the Art of Middle East Diplomacy. Hi, Amir. Good to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you on our podcast. Martin, in a few minutes, we'll talk in depth about Kissinger and the history of Middle East peacemaking. I want to ask you first about some recent news that just came out uh, today as we are recording this podcast. The Israeli government announced the construction of more than a thousand new units in settlements across the Green Line. It would be interesting to discuss what Kissinger would have done around the, the timing of this announcement. What do you think Biden is going to do about it? Well, when Kissinger was uh, in charge, there was only, I think, a thousand settlers. Now there are 466,000, I believe, at last count. So circumstances were very different. 
but he was willing to stand up to Israel in, in very clear-cut ways as long as he believed it served American interests and the interests of peace. So I think he would have taken a pretty strong stand against uh, this settlement expansion, especially at this stage when it's so sensitive, delicate moment with nothing happening in the political peace process to expand settlement activity in this way is, I think, playing with fire, just as allowing prayer on the Temple Mount is playing with fire. So all these incremental things have the danger of, it's like, you know, uh, try to break a pencil holding it on both ends, and you have no idea when it's going to snap, but eventually it will snap. And will the Biden administration, you think, uh, have some... Tough response because so far it looks like Biden is uh, trying to protect perhaps this new Israeli government and uh, we're not hearing a lot of criticism from Washington DC over steps like this one. Well I think there are there are several factors operating here. One is the c- concern about about what it does in, in terms of the creeping annexation, especially uh, expanding uh, outlying settlements in the heart of, of the West Bank. But secondly, Biden has been part of the Obama administration that got wrapped around the axle of settlements to no good purpose. Um, they, they asked for and, a freeze and then it, it, for, it lasted for 10 months and it didn't really lead to anything. Correct. And a lot of that 10 months was wasted because, because the Palestinians wouldn't come to the table anyway. So to have a, a fight uh, with Israel over this is uh, something that uh, needs to demonstrate That there's going to be a, a positive result uh, and that's not clear and the third thing of course is Biden has a lot of other priorities to deal with in uh, the Middle East neighborhood of course there's Iran and that's becoming a pressing issue and uh, not to speak of climate change and China the uh, the real priorities in his uh, S- sm- small negligible issues it's just a question of you know where you're going to uh, expend your energy and where you can get a positive result. Ultimately, I think that the attitude of the Biden administration is, this is Israel's problem. We'll help it. You know, it's an obligation uh, of a friend of Israel to advise it. We think it's going wrong. But in the end, Israel will have to uh, pay the price one way or the other. And, you know, we fear the consequences. We warn of the consequences. But it can become our problem. I'm just saying it's Israel's problem to solve. And uh, by the way, that was, that was Kissinger's attitude too towards the Palestinians in the West Bank. Um, but yeah, we, we, failure is a good teacher and uh, we uh, broke our pickaxe on, on uh, this issue over many years and we were not listened to. Uh, the settlers uh, were in control of the agenda and no Israeli government was prepared to stand up to them. No Israeli government. Except uh, actually Rabin's government uh, back in, in the early days of Oslo, but since then no, and, since, and before that not. So, you know, that's, that's Israel's decision, and I think that the United States has issues of strategic consequence to deal with these days, and you know, how many settlement units there are in the West Bank is not a, a strategic consequence to the United States. It's a mistake for Israel. in the view of I think, many Americans, including in the administration. But that's Israel's uh, challenge to deal with. 
Mm-hmm. One other question about a more recent issue. Over the weekend, the biggest news story here has been the decision by Defense Minister Gantz to announce several Palestinian human rights organizations as terror organizations and designate them like that from the Israeli point of view. When you were ambassador here, was this something that you remember being discussed with the Israeli side? Um, you know, these uh, designations like this, were there tensions around? Because right now we're seeing the Biden administration saying, We had no idea about this this we're going to ask Israel for some clarifications about it yeah well uh, it wasn't an issue uh, back in in my day but that was a long time ago but but I think the issue of funding for NGOs is an issue that Israel has has been focused on for what the last 10 years or so it's a more recent uh, issue I don't know what the facts of the matter are here I would just urge the Israeli government to put the facts out as quickly as possible and because it's it's a pretty egregious uh, thing on the face of it to shut down human rights organizations so if they are in fact involved in terrorist activity or financing uh, a terrorist organization then the Israeli government should be able to demonstrate that clearly and uh, there's some sensitive intelligence they can share it in the intelligence channels but on the face of it uh, especially given the the concern about Palestinian human rights in the Democratic Party and in the Congress it's uh, an action which requires explanation and that's exactly what the uh, State Department has said we'll wait for that information to come out so moving on to uh, your book about Kissinger I, I want first of all the listeners to hear small excerpt from a conversation that you and the former Secretary of State had with journalist Susan Glasser, I believe last week, where he talks about one of the aspects that make solving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict so difficult. My point of view in looking at the Middle East and in dealing with it over the years was that the divisions between the parties were so great and were so different that it was very difficult difficult to define a position for one side and a position for the other between which you could then mediate. Martin, how much was this issue of deciding what is a final agreement problematic in your years as a negotiator on this issue? Well, in my years as a negotiator, starting in 1993 with the Clinton administration, I had the sense, and I said this to President Clinton in the first briefing that we had of his presidency on the Arab-Israeli peace process, that if he put his mind to it, he could have four peace agreements in his first four years and the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict would be resolved. That was my opinion. I wasn't the only one, but it was because all the stars seemed aligned in the right orbit. Israel had elected uh, Yitzhak Rabin, And a government, as he told us on his first visit to Washington, that was uh, had a mandate to take risks for peace. And the Soviet Union had just collapsed. Saddam Hussein's army had been evicted from Kuwait, and there was no possible Arab war coalition against Israel. The PLO was on its last legs because it had sided with Saddam Hussein, and well, Palestinians had been evicted from most of the Gulf states as a result. And uh, Arafat's sources of money were drying up. And all of the Arabs, including the, the Palestinians, were uh, engaged in direct negotiations with Israel as a result of the Madrid peace process, which had begun about a year earlier or so. So it really looked like everything was aligned for a breakthrough to a comprehensive end to the Arab-Israeli conflict. And that was the assumption which we operated on. 
which uh, I sold to President Clinton, and he looked at me and said, I want to do that, which is what we tried for eight years. And uh, we made some early progress, the Oslo Accords and the Israel-Jordan Peace Treaty in the first couple of years. But then after Rabin's assassination, the whole thing went south. So suddenly, uh, Netanyahu's government collapsed and uh, Barack was elected, and he came to Washington and he said, let's finish it. Let's redeem Rabin's legacy and uh, we'll go for that comprehensive end of the conflict uh, on all fronts. And in my first year and your last year is what Barack said to Clinton. And as a result of that, we were off to the races again and uh, trying first for a, a deal between Israel and Syria. And when that failed, we turned to the Palestinians. And Barack insisted that we go for a conflict-ending summit uh, at Camp David, where it was very clear that either you know Arafat would accept the terms offered by the United States and Israel, or uh, he would be unmasked as not willing to end the conflict. And so we went along with that, and it all blew up in our faces at the end of the Clinton administration. What, what do you father? Yes, and, and that painful history we all remember. What do you think the uh, hero main character of your book, uh, Kissinger, would have done differently in those years? There's no question, uh, as I show in the book, that he was deeply skeptical of efforts to end the conflict. His attitude towards peace uh, in the abstract was that it was a, a, a fine objective, but the pursuit of it, especially the pursuit of it with too much passion and energy, was dangerous because uh, he would could would in his view achieve the opposite instead of peace it could destabilize the existing order and lead to war and so that's why he was very wary of it from his study of history in the first book that he published on the first page this is exactly what he talks about the book was a world restored Kalsaray Metnik and the problems of peace Hmm. So it's in the very title. But if, peace is if, if you want peace too much, you might be paving the way to war. Exactly. And that's exactly what we did. Mm -hmm. when, when you go back in time to Kissinger's years as the, really the, the shuttle diplomacy uh, point man uh, on the Middle East, what impressed you most in, in the work that he did back then, mostly in, in the years after the Yom Kippur War? Well, first of all, it was this conception of step-by-step -step diplomacy. A gradual incremental approach because he judged that the Arabs weren't ready to uh, end the conflict with Israel. Very, very different than this uh, Big Bang kind of theory that uh, Eud Barak yeah. sold Clinton on many years later. Exactly right. A step-by-step -step, gradual incremental process was what he introduced as the way to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. And, and the idea was to exhaust the Arabs so that they would come around them finally, eventually, to uh, accepting Israel, and in the meantime, to give time to Israel to build its strength, to reduce its isolation, the better to be able to take risks for peace when the uh, Arabs came around. So in the meantime, there needed to be a peace process, not an end game. And process ended up being a dirty word, but Kissinger, it was the essence of Kissinger's diplomacy, successful diplomacy. He negotiated four Arab-Israeli agreements two with Egypt, one with Syria and the ceasefire in the Yom Kippur War. And he took Egypt out of the conflict with Israel, which made it impossible for any of the other Arab states 
to, to seriously plan a war. It was essentially the end of state-to-state uh, -state conflict, which was precisely what he was aiming for. And the peace treaty with Egypt came two years later by Jimmy Carter. And I asked him whether he ever regretted not going for it because, as my research shows, uh, Rabin and Sadat, Rabin was prime minister at that stage, Rabin and Sadat were ready for what Rabin called the big step. But Kissinger wasn't. Kissinger didn't believe in it. And when I asked him at 98 whether he regretted not going for the peace treaty, not being the one to have made the peace, he said no, because I always feared that if I pushed too hard, I would break it. Hmm. And that was like a light bulb going off in my head. It was like, yeah, exactly. That's what we did. Did he believe in this uh, phrase that we were, we've been hearing from the American side in recent years after the failures of past negotiations that America cannot and should not want this more than the two sides themselves? No, he didn't because in those days, uh, coming off the 1973 Yom Kippur War, in which the United States and the Soviet Union had engaged in a confrontation that could have gotten out of control. Nuclear so, world war, kind of. Yeah, well, the, he, he, had, he ordered a DEFCON 3 alert for, for America's strategic uh, bombing forces, amongst others, in order to deter the Soviet Union from moving in to uh, break the Israeli siege of the Egyptian Third Army. So there had been a superpower confrontation in that war. That was one reason why uh, the United States needed a peace process. But also during that war, the Arabs had imposed an oil embargo, which was wreaking havoc on the global economy and the American economy. And uh, he had to find a way to get that embargo lifted. So peace process became essential to the United States. And because it was essential to the United States, he took on the uh, Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir and through relentless diplomacy eventually convinced her that Israel had to give up some territory in order to start a peace process. And, and that was a crucial diplomatic battle, yet another diplomatic battle with Yitzhak Rabin uh, in 1975, which was a kind of monumental knockdown dragout fight in which he was responsible for withholding new arms sales to Israel for four months. Mm -hmm. Imagine that happening yeah. today. Yeah. Because it was, in a, it was a strong American, vital American interest to stabilize the order through an effective peace process in which the United States was seen to be the one that could deliver concessions from Israel that would address Arab grievances. That was the essence of his approach. How did Kissinger's own Jewish identity impact his standing with the Arab regimes at the time? Well, Kissinger certainly identified as a Jew. He was not religious. He'd left his religion behind in the Second World War. Uh, but he did identify as a Jew. And as a Jew, he had very little exposure to the Arab world before, before he came into uh, Nixon's White House. Uh, he'd never traveled there, traveled six times to Israel. So he didn't know much about the Arabs. He was wary of how they would view him as a Jew. As far as his relationship with Israel concerned, it was complicated. Golda Meir treated him like, you know, the, a, a wayward nephew and uh, expected him to respond to her guilt trips. And he was trying to convince her that um, uh, Israel's interests and American interests required Israel to do things that she had no intention of doing, that is to give up territory. 
So they had a real, really tough uh, relationship. But his overall effort was to help Israel make peace and help Israel strengthen itself. Mm-hmm. And he believed that Israel had to be strengthened and its isolation reduced uh, in order for it to be able to make peace. So he acted in ways that, that are little known that I detail in the book from the way he dealt with uh, Israel's nuclear program to the way he provided arms during the 1973 war. And there's a, there's a myth that he held up arms. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, the way that he, uh, after having a knockdown drag out fight with Rabin over giving up the strategic passes and oil fields in Sinai, then rewarded Israel for its steps in peace with a cornucopia of new arms, including high-tech weapons, Pershing missiles, the nuclear-capable missiles, a whole range of things he did on the military assistance level to ensure uh, Israel's strength. So he was fundamentally pro-Israel, but he was operating in an anti-Semitic environment in the White House. Nixon uh, at some point basically said, you're Jewish, you should not deal with Israel and its neighbors. Exactly. He was in his first four years uh, confined to dealing with the rest of the world. And Secretary of State Rogers was the one who was given responsibility. But Kissinger found his way. It took him about three years to get control of, of the issue. And Nixon finally gave up on that. Um, but, but he operated in an anti-Semitic environment, uh, which is the explanation for some of the egregious things he's, he's heard to have said on tape. Mm-hmm. Um, but nevertheless, his, his underlying agenda was to help Israel. was to strengthen Israel, not just because of his Jewishness, but because he believed that served the best interests of the United States. Kissinger today is 98 years old, I believe. Um, That's right. And I have to say in the conversation uh, with you and Susan Glather that I listened to before our recording, he still talks uh, about current events with uh, great observations. And I want to hear his uh, reference to the Abraham Accords, the most recent example of a breakthrough in Israeli-Arab relations. Let's listen. UAE, and, yes. and it's, uh, yes. I consider very, uh, very significant because they are an agreement that was made with, without outside pressure, without that encouragement, but not outside pressure, because the UAE became convinced that this was the best way by their own analysis to proceed. And so I was very encouraged by that and creates the hope that with adequate diplomacy and adequate strengths, which have to be linked, that in time, other Arab states can also join this, this process. Saudi Arabia, for example. Uh, uh, Martin, he mentions there uh, the possibility maybe of Saudi Arabia joining the club. Uh, do you see the, that as a likely scenario in the, under the Biden administration and the new government in Israel? Well, a Kissingerian answer would be eventually. <laughs> uh, and I say that because uh, the Abraham Accords was, was a, a perfect case study in what Kissinger conceived of as, as the peace process, that eventually the Arabs would grow exhausted. With their conflict with, with Israel and decide to recognize it and, and deal with it. And that's exactly what happened in the Abraham Accords. Indeed, one of the Emiratis, I can't remember whether it was the ambassador Yusuf Al-Tabar or, or Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed, but one of them said, we decided 
to normalize with Israel because we're exhausted by the conflict. It was exactly what Kissinger had predicted. So to predict uh, in the same vein that Saudi Arabia will come along, it's going to be entirely consistent. And it will, I'm quite sure. Uh, but Saudi Arabia is not the United Arab Emirates. Saudi Arabia is a big country. United Arab Emirates is small. It has a cosmopolitan population. Its citizens are outnumbered by uh, expats, I think something like four to one. And, and Saudi Arabia is, is a big country, the leader of the Muslim world, the king's the custodian of the two holiest mosques in Islam. They've been uh, fed a, uh, an anti-Israel, anti-Semitic anti diet for decades. These are the kings who believe in, in you know, the conspiracy of the elders of Zion. Uh, and by the way, that's what Kissinger encountered when he had his first meeting with King Faisal, a fascinating exchange, which I detail in, in the book. So for the Saudis, it's not so simple. Mm -hmm. no, I have no doubt that uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman would like to normalize, would like just to get beyond uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict. He's got bigger ideas in mind. And certainly, uh, he made sure to allow, air, to open the air corridor between Bahrain and the Emirates and, and Israel across Saudi Arabia as a demonstration of his support. But the normalization would have to be approved by his father. And the king is, you know, focused, he's old guard, he's focused on Jerusalem, and he wants to see a solution for the Palestinians. So I think there needs to be some visible progress on the Palestinian front for the Saudis to point to. I'm not talking about an end game, but progress, the kind of gradual incremental progress that Kissinger thinks is necessary, mm -hmm. uh, is, could be enough to lubricate the, the wheels of normalization in Saudi Arabia. But absent that, I think there may be small things that they'll do. They'll certainly continue to cooperate behind the curtain. But the, but the ultimate breakthrough is going to depend, uh, I think, on some progress on the Palestinian front. And one other thing, which is transactional in, the, in nature for the Crown Prince, which is what is the United States going to pay me? Paid in F-35s for the UAE, paid in uh, recognition of the Western Sahara for Morocco. He's got a long list. <laughs> he wants arms that we've, we're holding back. He wants to be taken out of purgatory and be welcomed to the White House and, and on and on. And a lot of those things in the bilateral relationship are things that the Biden administration is not willing to pay for until some other aspects of Saudi behavior are uh, changed. Yeah, well, that would be a fascinating uh, process to keep following. Uh, Martin Indyk, former ambassador to Israel and the author of Master of the Game on Henry Kissinger's Middle East Diplomacy, thank you very much for joining us for this episode. Thank you, Amir. And that's it for our episode today. Thank you very much to our producer, Aaron Ehrlich, and to you listeners. We'll be back on Friday with another episode of Haaretz Weekend. Until our next meeting, Shalom from Tel Aviv.